Chapter Twenty One of the Spoilers by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty One, The Hammerlock. Day was breaking as Glenister came down the mountain. With the first light he halted to scan the trail, and having no means of knowing that the fresh tracks he found were not those of the two riders he followed, he urged his lathered horse ahead till he became suddenly conscious that he was very tired and had not slept for two days and nights. The recollection did not reassure the young man, for his body was a weapon which must not fail in the slightest measure now that there was work to do. Even the unwelcome speculation upon his physical handicap offered relief, however, from the agony which fed upon him whenever he thought of Helen in the gambler's hands. Meanwhile the horse, groaning at his master's violence, plunged onward towards the roofs of Nome, now growing gray in the first dawn. It seemed years since Roy had seen the sunlight, for this night burdened with suspense had been endlessly long. His body was faint beneath the strain, and yet he rode on and on, tired, dogged, stony, his eyes set towards the sea, his mind a storm of formless, whirling thoughts, beneath which was an undeviating, implacable determination. He knew now that he had sacrificed all hope of the Midas, and likewise the hope of Helen was gone. In fact, he began to realize dimly that from the beginning he had never had the possibility of winning her, that she had never been destined for him, and that his love for her had been sent as a light by which he was to find himself. He had failed everywhere, he had become an outlaw, he had fought and gone down, certain only of his rectitude and the mastery of his unruly spirit. Now the hour had come when he would perform his last mission, deriving therefrom that satisfaction which the gods could not deny. He would have his vengeance. The scheme took form without conscious effort on his part and embraced two things, the death of the gambler and a meeting with McNamara. Of the former he had no more doubt than that the sun rising there would sink in the west. So well confirmed was this belief that the details did not engage his thought. But on the result of the other encounter he speculated with some interest. From the first McNamara had been a riddle to him, and mystery breeds curiosity. His blind instinctive hatred of the man had assumed the proportions of a mania, but as to what the outcome would be when they met face to face fate alone could tell. Anyway, McNamara should never have Helen. Roy believed his mission covered that point as well as her deliverance from the Bronco Kid. When he had finished he would pay the price. If he had the luck to escape he would go back to his hills and his solitude. If he did not his future would be in the hands of his enemies. He entered the silent streets unobserved, for the mists were heavy and low smoke columns arose vertically in the still air. The rain had ceased, having beaten down the waves which rumbled against the beach, filling the streets with their subdued thunder. A ship anchored in the offing had run in from the lee of Sledge Island with the first lull, while midway to the shore a tender was rising and falling, its oars flashing like the silvered feelers of a sea insect crawling upon the surface of the ocean. He rode down Front Street, heedless of danger, heedless of the comment his appearance might create, and unseen entered his enemy's stronghold. He passed a gambling hall through the windows of which came a sickly yellow gleam, 
a man came out unsteadily and stared at the horseman, then passed on. Glenister's plan was to go straight to the northern and from there to track down its owner relentlessly, but in order to reach the place his course led him past the office of Dunham and Struve. This brought back to his man the man dying out there, ten miles at his back. The scantiest humanity demanded that assistance be sent at once. Yet he dared not give word openly, thus betraying his presence, for it was necessary that he maintain his liberty during the next hour at all hazards. He suddenly thought of an expedient and reined in his horse, which stopped with widespread legs and dejected head while he dismounted and climbed the stairs to leave a note upon the door. Someone would see the message shortly and recognize its urgency. In dressing for the battle at the Midas on the previous night he had replaced his leather boots with mukluks, which are waterproof, light, and pliable footgear made from the skin of seal and walrus. He was thus able to move as noiselessly as though in moccasins. Finding neither pencil nor paper in his pocket, he tried the outer door of the office to find it unlocked. He stepped inside and listened, then moved towards a table on which were writing materials, but in doing so heard a rustle in Struve's private office. Evidently his soft soles had not disturbed the man inside. Roy was about to tiptoe out as he had come when the hidden man cleared his throat. It is in these involuntary sounds that the voice retains its natural quality more distinctly even than in speaking. A strange eagerness grew in Glenister's face, and he approached the partition stealthily. It was of wood and glass, the panes clouded and opaque to a height of some six feet, but stepping upon a chair he peered into the open room beyond. A man knelt in a litter of papers before the open safe, its drawers and compartments removed, and their contents scattered. The watcher lowered himself, drew his gun, and laid soft hand upon the doorknob, turning the latch with firm fingers. His vengeance had come to meet him. After lying in wake during the long night, certain that the vigilantes would spring his trap, McNamara was astounded at news of the battle at the Midas and of Glenister's success. He stormed and cursed his men as cowards. The judge became greatly exercised over this new development which, coupled with his night of long anxiety, reduced him to a pitiful hysteria. "'They'll blow us up next! Great heavens! Dynamite! Oh, that is barbarous! For heaven's sakes, get the soldiers out, Alec!' "'Aye, we can use them now.' Thereupon McNamara roused the commanding officer at the post and requested him to accoutre a troop and have them ready to march at daylight, then bestirred the judge to start the wheels of his court and invoke this military aid in regular fashion. "'Make it all a matter of record,' he said. "'We want to keep our skirts clear from now on.' "'But the townspeople are against us,' quavered Stillman. "'They'll tear us to pieces.' "'Let them try. Once I get my hand on the ringleader,' the rest may riot and be damned. Although he had made less display than had the judge, the receiver was no less deeply worried about Helen, of whom no news came. His jealousy, fanned to red heat by the discovery of her earlier defection, was enhanced fourfold by the thought of this last adventure. Something told him there was treachery afoot, and when she did not return at dawn he began to fear that she had cast in her lot with the rioters. This aroused a perfect delirium of doubt and anger till he reasoned further that Struve, having gone with her, must also be a traitor. 
He recognized the menace in this fact, knowing the man's finality, so began to reckon carefully its significance. What could Struve do? What proof had he? McNamara started and, seizing his hat, hurried straight to the lawyer's office and let himself in with the key he carried. It was light enough for him to decipher the characters on the safe lock as he turned the combination, so he set to work scanning the endless bundles within, hoping that after all the man had taken with him no incriminating evidence. Once the searcher paused at some fancy sound, but when nothing came of it drew his revolver and laid it before him just inside the safe door and close beneath his hand, continuing to run through the documents while his uneasiness increased. He had been engaged so for some time when he heard the faintest creak at his back, too slight to alarm, and just sufficient to break his tension and cause him to jerk his head about. Framed in the open door stood Roy Glenister watching him. McNamara's astonishment was so genuine that he leaped to his feet, faced about, and prompted by a secretive instinct swung to the safe door as though to guard its contents. He had acted upon the impulse before realizing that his weapon was inside and that now, although the door was not locked, it would require that one dangerous, yes, fatal, second to open it. The two men stared at each other for a time, silent and malignant, their glances meeting like blades. In the older man's face a look of defiance, in the younger's a dogged and grim-purposed enmity. McNamara's first perturbation left him calm, alert, dangerous, whereas the continued contemplation of his enemy worked in Glenister to destroy his composure and his purpose blazed forth unhidden. He stood there, unkempt and soiled, the clean sweep of jaw and throat overgrown with a three days' black stubble, his hair wet and matted, his whole left side foul with clay where he had fallen in the darkness. A muddy red streak spread downward from a cut above his temple, beneath his eyes were sagging folds, while the flicker at his mouth-corners betrayed the high nervous pitch to which he was keyed. I have come for the last act, McNamara. Now we'll have it out, man to man. The politician shrugged his shoulders. You have the drop on me. I am unarmed. At which the miner's face lighted fiercely, and he chuckled. Ah, that's almost too good to be true. I have dreamed about such a thing, and I have been hungry to feel your throat since the first time I saw you. It's grown on me till shooting wouldn't satisfy me. Ever had that feeling? Well, I'm going to choke the life out of you with my bare hands. McNamara squared himself. I wouldn't advise you to try it. I have lived longer than you, and I was never beaten, but I know the feeling you speak about. I have it now. His eyes roved rapidly up and down the other's form, noting the lean thighs and close-drawn belt which lent the appearance of spareness, belied only by the neck and shoulders. He had beaten better men and he reasoned that if it came to a physical test in these cramped quarters his own great weight would more than offset any superior agility the miner might possess. The longer he looked, the more he yielded to his hatred of the man before him, and the more coolly he longed to satisfy it. "'Take off your coat,' said Glenister. "'Now turn around. All right, I just wanted to see if you were lying about your gun.' "'I'll kill you!' cried McNamara. Glenister laid his six-shooter upon the safe and slipped off his own wet garment. The difference was more marked now and the advantage more strongly with the receiver. Though they had avoided allusion to it, 
each knew that this fight had nothing to do with the Midas, and each realized whence sprang their fierce enmity. And it was meet that they should come together thus. It had been the one certain and logical event which they had felt inevitably approaching from long back. And it was fitting, moreover, that they should fight alone and unwitnessed, armed only with the weapons of the wilderness, for they were both of the far free lands, were both of the fighter's type, and had both warred for the first great prize. They met ferociously. McNamara aimed a fearful blow, but Glenister met him squarely, beating him off cleverly, stepping in and out, his arms swinging loosely from his shoulders like whalebone wisps tipped with lead. He moved lightly, his footing made doubly secure by reason of his soft-soled mucklucks. Recognizing his opponent's greater weight, he undertook merely to stop the headlong rushes and remain out of reach as long as possible. He struck the politician fairly in the mouth so that the man's head snapped back and his fists went wild. Then, before the arms could grasp him, the miner had broken ground and whipped another blow across. But McNamara was a boxer himself, so covered and blocked it. The politician spat through his mashed lips and rushed again, sweeping his opponent from his feet. Again Glenister's fist shot forward like a lump of granite, but the other came on head down and the blow finished too high, landing on the big man's brow. A sudden darting agony paralyzed Roy's hand, and he realized that he had broken the metacarpal bones and that henceforth it would be useless. Before he could recover, McNamara had passed under his extended arm and seized him by the middle, then, thrusting his left leg back of Roy's, he whirled him from his balance, flinging him clear and with resistless force. It seemed that a fatal fall must follow, but the youth squirmed cat-like in the air, landing with set muscles which rebounded like rubber. Even so, the receiver was upon him before he could rise, reaching for the young man's throat with his heavy hands. Roy recognized the fatal stranglehold, and seizing his enemy's wrist endeavored to tear them apart, but his left hand was useless, so with a mighty wrench he freed himself, and locked in each other's arms the men strained and swayed about the office till their neck veins were bursting, their muscles paralyzed. Men may fight duels calmly, may shoot or parry or thrust with cold deliberation, but when there comes the jar of body to body, the sweaty contact of skin to skin, the play of iron muscles, the painful gasp of exhaustion, then the mind goes skittering back into its dark recesses while every venomous passion leaps forth from its hiding-place and joins in the horrid war. They tripped across the floor, crashing into the partition, which split, showering them with glass. They fell and rolled in it, then, by consent, wrenched themselves apart and rose, eye to eye, their jaws hanging, their lungs wheezing, their faces trickling blood and sweat. Roy's left hand pained him excruciatingly, while McNamara's macerated lips had turned outward in a hideous pout. They crouched so for an instant, cruel, bestial, then clinched again. The office fittings were wrecked utterly and the room became a litter of ruins. The men's garments fell away till their breasts were bare and their arms swelled white and knotted through the rags. They knew no pain, their bodies were insensate mechanisms. Gradually the older man's face was beaten into a shapeless mass by the other's cunning blows while Glenister's every bone was wrenched and twisted under its enemy's terrible onslaughts. The miner's chief effort, it is true, was to keep his feet and to break the man's embraces. Never had he encountered one whom he could not beat by sheer strength, 
till he met this great snarling creature, who worried him hither and yon as though he were a child. Time and again Roy beat upon the man's face with the blows of a sledge. No rules governed this solitary combat. The men were deaf to all but the roaring in their ears, blinded to all but hate, insensible to everything but the blood mania. Their trampling feet caused the building to rumble and shake as though some monster were running amuck. Meanwhile a bareheaded man rushed out of the store beneath, bumping into a pedestrian who had paused on the sidewalk, and together they scurried up the stairs. The dory which Roy had seen at sea had shot the breakers, and now its three passengers were tracking through the wet sand towards Front Street, Bill Wheaton in the lead. He was followed by two raw-boned men who traveled without baggage. The city was awakening with the sun which reared a copper rim out of the sea. Judge Stillman and Voorhees came down from the hotel and paused to gaze through the mist at a caravan of mule teams which trotted into the other end of the street with jingle and clank. The wagons were blue with soldiers, the early golden rays slanting from their crags, and they were bound for the Midas. Out of the fogs which clung so thickly to the tundra there came two other horses, distorted and unreal, on one a girl, on the other a figure of pain and tragedy, a grotesque creature that swayed stiffly to the motion of its steed, its face writhed in the lines of suffering, its hands clutching cattle and horn. It was as though fate, with invisible touch, were setting her stage for the last act of this play, assembling the principals close to the golden sands where first they had made entrance. The man and the girl came face to face with the judge and marshal, who cried out upon seeing them, but as they reined in, out from the stairs beside them, a man shot amid clatter and uproar. "'Give me a hand, quick!' he shouted to them. "'What's up?' inquired the marshal. "'It's murder! McNamara and Lannister!' He dashed back up the stairs behind Voorhees, the judge following while muffled cries came from above. The gambler turned towards the three men who were hurrying from the beach, and recognizing Wheaton called to him, "'Untie my feet! Cut the ropes! Quick!' "'What's the trouble?' the lawyer asked but on hearing Glenister's name bounded after the judge, leaving one of his companions to free the writer. They could hear the fight now, and all crowded towards the door, Helen with her brother in spite of his warning to stay behind. She never remembered how she climbed those stairs, for she was borne along by that hypnotic power which drags one to behold the catastrophe in spite of his will. Reaching the room she stood appalled for the group she had joined watched two raging things that rushed at each other with inhuman cries, ragged, bleeding, fighting on a carpet of debris. Every loose and breakable thing had been ground to splinters as though by iron slugs in a whirling cylinder. To this day, from Dawson to the Straits, from Unga to the Arctics, men tell of the combat whenever they foregather at flaring campfires or in dingy bunkhouses and although some scout the tale, there are others who saw it and can swear to its truth. These say that the encounter was like the battle of a bull moose in the rutting season, though more terrible, averring that two men like these had never been known in the land since the days of Vitus Bering and his crew, for their rancor had swollen till at feel of each other's flesh they ran mad and felt superhuman strength. It is true, at any rate, that neither was conscious of the filling room nor the cries of the crowd, even when the marshal forced himself through the wedge door and fell upon the nearest which was Glenister. 
He came at an instant when the two had paused at arm's length, glaring with rage-drunken eyes, gasping the labored breath back into their lungs. With a fling of his long arms the young man hurled the intruder aside so violently that his head struck the iron safe, and he collapsed insensible. Then, without apparent notice of the interruption, the fight went on. It was seen during this respite that McNamara's mouth was running water as though he were deathly sick, while every wretch brought forth a groan. Helen heard herself crying, "'Stop them! Stop them!' But no one seemed capable of interference. She heard her brother muttering and his breath coming heavily like that of the fighters, his body swaying in time to theirs. The judge was ashy, imbecile, helpless. McNamara's distress was patent to his antagonist, who advanced upon him with the hunger of promised victory. But the young man's muscles obeyed his commands sluggishly, his ribs seemed broken, his back was weak, and on the inner side of his legs the flesh was quivering. As they came together the boss reached up his right hand and caught the miner by the face, burying thumb and fingers crab-like into his cheeks, forcing his slack jaws apart, thrusting his head backward while he centered every ounce of his strength in the effort to maim. Roy felt the flesh giving way and flung himself backward to break the hold, whereupon the other summoned his wasting energy and plunged towards the safe where lay the revolver. Instinct warned Glenister of treachery, told him that the man had sought this last resource to save himself, and as he saw him turn his back and reach for the weapon, the youth leaped like a panther, seizing him about the waist, grasping McNamara's wrist with his right hand. For the first time during the combat they were not face to face, and on the instant Roy realized the advantage given him through the other's perfidy, realized the wrestler's hold that was his, and knew that the moment of victory was come. The telling takes much time, but so quickly had these things happened that the footsteps of the soldiers had not yet reached the door when the men were locked beside the safe. Of what happened next many garbled accounts have gone forth, for of all those present none but the Bronco Kid knew its significance and ever recounted the truth concerning it. Some claimed that the younger man was seized with a fear of death which multiplied his enormous strength. Others that the power died in his adversary as reward for his treason. But it was not so. No sooner had Roy encompassed McNamara's waist from the rear than he slid his damaged hand up past the other's chest and around the back of his neck, thus bringing his own left arm close under his enemy's left armpit, wedging the receiver's head forward while his other hand he grasped the politician's right wrist close to the revolver, thus holding him in a grasp which could not be broken. Now came the test. The two bodies set themselves rock-like and rigid. There was no lunging about. Calling up the final atom of his strength, Glenister bore backward with his right arm, and it became a contest for the weapon which, clutched in the two hands, swayed back and forth or darted up and down, the fury of resistance causing it to trace formless patterns in the air with its muzzle. McNamara shook himself, but he was close against the safe and could not escape his head bowed forward by the lock of the miner's left arm, and so he strained till the breath clogged in his throat. Despite the grievous toll his right hand moved back slightly, his feet shifted a bit while the blood seemed bursting from his eyes, but he found that the long fingers encircling his wrists were like jives weighted with the strength of the hills and the irresistible vigor of youth which knew no defeat. Slowly, inch by inch, 
the great man's arm was dragged back, down past his side, while the strangling labor of his breath showed at what awful cost. The muzzle of the gun described a semicircle, and the knotted hands began to travel towards the left, more rapidly now across his broad back. Still he struggled and wrenched, but uselessly. He strove to fire the weapon, but his fingers were woven about it so that the hammer would not work. Then the miner began forcing upward. The white skin beneath the men's strips of clothing was stretched over great knots and ridges which sunk and swelled and quivered. Helen, watching in silent terror, felt her brother sinking his fingers into her shoulder and heard him panting, his face ablaze with excitement, while she became conscious that he had repeated time and again, "'It's the hammerlock! The hammerlock!' By now McNamara's arm was bent and cramped upon his back, and then they saw Glenister's shoulder dip, his elbow come closer to his side, and his body heave in one final terrific effort as though pushing a heavy weight. In the silence something snapped like a stick. There came a deafening report and the scream of a strong man overcome with agony. McNamara went to his knees and sagged forward onto his face as though every bone in his huge bulk had turned to water, while his master reeled back against the opposite wall, his heels dragging in the litter, bringing up with outflung arms as though fearful of falling, swaying, blind, exhausted, his face blackened by the explosion of the revolver yet grim with the light of victory. Judd Stillman shouted hysterically, "'Arrest that man! Quick! Don't let him go!' It was the miner's first realization that others were there. Raising his head, he stared at the faces close against the partition, then groaned the words, "'I beat the traitor, and—and I broke him with my hands!' End of chapter 21 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's audiobooks dot com